All right, my friends, I'm dropping you a quick note from a layover here in Phoenix, Arizona, because I want to take just a moment to share some huge news. I've been whispering about it for a while, but the time has finally come. If you enjoy the Live Inspired podcast, you are going to absolutely love the Live Inspired in-studio experience. It's a place where you'll join me and an amazing community of like-minded friends for live webcast once a month packed with inspirational and ideas to elevate your leadership, your relationships, your lives, and your journey forward. Registration only takes place twice a year, so don't miss this opportunity. Registration is only open today and tomorrow. Take advantage of it right now at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash studio. Go ahead, hit pause on the podcast. It's going to be a great one. You don't want to miss it. But go ahead and visit me right now online at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash studio. I'll see you there. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, thank you, Joe Buck, and hello, my friends. This is going to be a super special episode because, drum roll, here we go, it is our 100th Live Inspired podcast episode. Pretty cool stuff right there. 100 extraordinary guests, more than 1 million downloads from not only all over the United States, but from all around the world. We have been going strong since fall 2016, and it is our belief, and it is yours, I'm sure, as well, we're just getting started. This is just the beginning. I want to thank you for being part of our Live Inspired podcast community, and as much as I love the guests that we have on, I appreciate even more the impact of their stories, their messages, their lives on yours. So I'm asking you to take just a moment to do me a big favor. I'd like you to take a survey so that we can better understand what it is about our Live Inspired podcast that you love, what's working for you, maybe what's not working perfectly for you, what more you'd like to hear about, and maybe a special guest you'd like us to bring on. You can take this survey by visiting me online at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. Again, here we go, johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. Come on. I really want these podcasts to be as best as they can. I want them to challenge your thinking and elevate your lives. So take just a moment right now, help us make this better, not only for you, but for our entire community. Your feedback matters. So go again right now to johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. Now, here we go. I have the pleasure of introducing today's guest. We recorded this one live with this individual in our studio So after listening to this recording, you may want to cruise over to our website and check out the show notes, or you can view the full unedited video. I also encourage you to listen until the very end of this one, because not only will this gentleman talk about his career in music and the music that he wrote and the stadiums that he rocked, but he's also going to play a song for us that he recently wrote live. I've heard it. It's awesome. It quite literally moved me to tears. It's beautiful, and you're going to love it. So with all that being said, I'm going to hit play on my interview with one of my favorite guests to date on this, the 100th episode. It's an awesome one. Get ready, because here it comes. 
Welcome, my friends, to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. The band Journey is one of the greatest rock bands in all history. They enjoyed seven consecutive multi-platinum albums between 78 and 1987. They had 18 top 40 singles, including classics like Wheel in the Sky, Faithfully, Open Arms, and a much lesser known Don't Stop Believing." They've also sold more than 75 million records around the world, making them one of the best-selling bands of all time. USA Today has called them one of the top five bands in U.S. history. Unbelievable. And in 2017, this band was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Well, friends, the keyboardist, the songwriter, and I believe the heart and the soul of Journey is with me live on Live Inspired with John O'Leary's podcast today. We'll be talking about Journey. Maybe we'll uh, talk a little bit about the babies or bad English. Sure. But more than that, we'll be discussing challenges, tragedies, influences, mm -hmm. mistakes, overcoming, redemption. In other words, we're going to be talking about life. Life, yeah. So my friends, whether you are wearing your 1982 Journey Escape Tour t-shirt right at this very moment, or you hate all things rock and roll, you are going to love this visit with musician, with author, with son, with father and friend, Jonathan Kane. Jonathan Kane, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. Man, it's an honor to be here. <laughs> we heard that uh, the band journey was coming to St. Louis, and I have a friend who knows you through another life, and exactly. I wondered if you might be able to uh, make a little bit of time for us, and well, here God, we are. Well, God sure opened a window, I'll tell you what. Uh, you know, I was wondering what I was going to do today. It was either going to be golfing or you and it's. I'd rather be. You made I'd the right rather call. be. I'd rather be here with you than on the golf course. I'm glad you're here at the golf yes, course tomorrow night. You're going to be rocking out with a bunch of my friends at yes. a packed Bush Stadium. We hope so. Yeah, we're we're looking forward to it. Well, it's on. And uh, for those who think, well, you know, it's nice that there are singers and songwriters out there and musicians who are extraordinarily successful. They need to also understand, you didn't come out this way. The journey right. toward the stadium rocking out tomorrow night at Bush Stadium in St. Louis, Missouri, wasn't always the Jonathan Kane story. No. So what I wanted to do for our listeners and our viewers today is to take them back to the beginning. You were born in Chicago, is that right? That's right, yeah. Born in Chicago. Uh, my father was a printer from the South, Arkansas. And my mom, of course, uh, you know, he came to Chicago out of the army, you mm -hmm. know, to, be, to learn the, the craft of printing. Fell in love with my mother. They were deeply in love. And I guess I happened, you know, like a mistake. I figured out looking at their wedding picture years <laughs> later that, wait a minute, she's pregnant with me here, you know? That's right. And so I, she, I had a very young mother. She was only 19, you know, and my father, uh, you know, barely had eighth grade education. Right. And so they worked together to get my father into the printer's union to pass all the tests. Uh, to get his reading and writing up to snuff. I mean, they spent a lot of time together, but just total devotional love. You you wrote an entire book it, that I have read and deeply was moved by called mm -hmm. Don't Stop Believing. You talk about your mom and dad in there. Yeah. Briefly here until the folks have an opportunity to run out to the store and get this thing. <laughs> talk about your mom. It, it sounded yeah. like an unusual relationship. She, she um, grew up with three brothers and her father was a whaler on a Norwegian whaling ship. Very interesting. Um, and it was rough. You know, she had a rough upbringing. And then her brothers all left for World War II. Mm -hmm. One was an Air Force, two were in the Navy. And, and so they were kind of abandoned. And then 
her father is off out at sea and sometimes he would come home and sometimes he wouldn't, you know, and then when he would come home, it wouldn't be so good, you know, because he'd be inebriated or something. And and so she grew up around a, a, a lot of brokenness, you know, and it was hard for her having me. I don't think she was ready for me at 19, you know. So it was kind of this, I grew up in tough love. You're going to get tough love. I'm going to show you what I went through, you know, as a kid. And these three brothers were hmm. all different personalities, very loving, but they didn't even want my dad to marry her because he was Catholic. Right. And they were Lutheran. And they said, you're not going to marry that hillbilly Catholic, you know. And so there was this contention over their marriage. And my father, being the prevailer overcomer that he was, just he rode it through. He got close to the brothers and said, listen, man, I'm your brother. I'm I'm just like you, man. I love Chicago. I'm going to make it. Your sister's going to be fine. All is good. But, you know, there was always that sort of uh, rough edge to my mom. And she was she would demand a lot, expect a lot, you know. And in the end, I needed it. Yeah, right. You know, I needed it because my father was a big teddy bear. You know, he was like, but he was also, you know, you got to get on task, you know. So they were a great blend. Uh, I probably get more hugs from my dad than my mom, you know. Your, your father clearly was a mighty influence in your life he all was, the way through. Yeah. We'll keep bringing him yeah. up as we go through your Leonard, life story. Yeah, Leonard. Give the folks listening right now a sense for who your dad was. Um, As a boy, what what was dad like when you were a little guy? He was my movie star. Like I'd say, like Humphrey Bogart, you know, when you see Humphrey Bogart, he had that low voice. He had that charm. Uh, You know, he dressed impeccably. He had, you know, wore the fedora hat. I mean, he had the tie, the coat, the whole thing, you know, suits. He went to work dressed for success. And my aunt Louise called him Duke. He was known as Duke, you know, and he could charm the pants off anybody. I mean, he ended up working as a phone guy for the printer shop. So they would call him and he would get the order and and schmooze these guys, all the customers, you know, with his, he could have been on radio, my dad. He was a charmer. He believed in you from the beginning. Yeah. He also had- uh, Lucky for me. (laughs) And us. He also had a- an attractive, contagious faith that you notice as a little guy. And one of the things that really surprised me about the book is that you grew up very faithful. And in fact, you wanted to be a priest as absolutely, a young boy. Absolutely, absolutely. I, you know, he he led me to this church, uh, Our Lady of the Angels, and he said, We're gonna go to church here. And I and I watched him, probably, you know, five years old, uh, kneel down with his little missile and, you know, and pray devoutly. You know, he closed his eyes and at some point, the tears would start coming down his cheeks, and I'm like, "Wow, he's crying." I said, "Dad, why?" So I asked him after the mass. I said, "Were you crying in church?" He goes, "Those are tears for Jesus." I'm like, "Holy cow, that's powerful." I'm like, um, "Can you teach me to pray?" And who is Jesus? You know, mm-hmm. and I, I was very interested uh, very early, you know, in a relationship. That he, I was jealous of that. I could see right. he was transcended, you know, kneeling down in that pew. And and he said, listen, man, you just got to call for him and tell him that, you know, he's your savior and all sins will be forgiven. And I'm like, wow, okay, I'll, I'm doing it. So I kept praying, Jesus, Jesus, you know, <laughs> for a good solid year until finally I thought I had a breakthrough you know, with my prayer and that that I had this warm glow inside. And he he said, John, that's kind of it. You you're you're onto something. So 
when I had my first communion at seven years old, it was pretty supernatural. It really wasn't a great thing um, for me to already have a relationship. And that's when I said, you know, after communion, I was so overwhelmed with the spirit. And, you know, I loved all the priests at our church. They were such mighty men, uh, could preach the gospel like nobody's business. And um, I said, I want to be like these guys. And they get to sing and the choirs, dancers back. And then I love Latin and, you know, and so I ended up being a choir boy. I sang uh, Gregorian Latin chants uh, and was in the choir. I didn't quite get the altar boy thing down, but I did. I was in the choir for years until my voice cracked, you know. <laughs> well, I'm glad it cracked because it, uh, it opened you up to new opportunities yes. in time. But it would be some valleys and peaks as we move toward that. Jonathan, when I was in second grade, my teacher's name was Sister Kathleen, and she was tough. Man, she, she was the toughest teacher I've ever had in my entire sure. life. Woo. We had a fire drill, and uh, I was apparently goofing off on the recess playground area, and we came back in, and she lit me up. Yep. And I mean, seriously, like, oh, yeah. I'll never forget what she said. And then she started talking about a story that happened in Chicago at this little school called Our Lady of Angels, and she talked about a fire that spread through the school, and those who did not follow the directions appropriately, many of them ended up dying. Yeah. She talked about, I think, 92 kids yep. burned to death. And three nuns. Three nuns. 50 other kids injured at one level or another. Tr traumatic story that transformed this community in Chicago. And I, I'll never forget her telling me this. That's wild. It is wild. That and you know, you I got would, burned myself would. two years later, which is wild. But what's most wild today is I'm seated across from a guy who was there. Mm. You, you were there on that first day of December. I was there and uh, it was eerie because um, cold, crisp day, sunny, um, all of a sudden, you know, we smell smoke and yet there's no alarm that goes off. Well, they, there's apparently there was a mix up in calling the fire department. They, there's, uh, you know, d discrepancies when they called them. So by the time the Chicago fire department got there it was a five alarm fire and kids were jumping out of the second story onto the pavement. And now you can imagine the scene where the parents are coming to pick up their children um, hysterical, my children, my, where's my, my child, where is he, you know? And um, it's surreal. It was so surreal. I was like, this, at eight years old, what the heck? And I kept saying, Jesus, you can't let this happen. You cannot let this happen. But, it, you know, he was there with us and how, how probably did that, cried I, the tears. How did that change you as a third grader? Oh, God, devastated. It's just facing evil. That's evil. That's chaos. And, you know, when you're only eight, you don't, that's like going to World War II. That's getting a, a taste of what World War II was like, you know, being in, you know, in that kind of death. You know, like one, one day of bombing in the trenches, you know, you're going to lose 90 guys, right? Um, and these kids, you know, are innocent of any sin. And I, I, you know, they taught us about hell and purgatory and everything like that. And I'm trying to work it out. I'm like, how in the world does this make any sense? Mm. You know, and we haven't really learned about the enemy or hell. But I got to say, I will not even give the devil credit for that fire. No, no. They, he had none. That, that was just pure chaos that happened. Got and we changed the fire code throughout the whole for country. the entire world. That's a fact. Came to Chicago to find out what went wrong, you know. And, and so... 
I can say those 92 children that died that day um, were messengers, um, that something so horrific would never happen again in a school, you know? And um, it took me a long time to work that out, John. Yeah. It changed you. It changed the entire community and the world, for better and for worse. It changed yeah. everybody after that. It did, yeah. You turn inward. You turn toward music. Yeah. What was it about music that you found so attractive? Oh, God, I, my father recognized my ability to learn, you know, the hit parade at a young age. I was singing all the songs. I was like his little, you know, jukebox. I, I'd sing Johnny Ray. I'd sing Rosemary Clooney, you know, whoever, you know, uh, was in the 50s, Mambo Italiano. I knew the words to all this stuff, you know. And so he recognized that music was there and I he'd take me to this bar called Pat's Tavern and I had a piano and I'd start playing the boogie woogie and he goes, Who taught you that? I said, I don't know, I'm just listen. I think I got it. You know, he's that's pretty close, you know. So he said, Let's go for music. And he took me to music school. It was one of those deals where pick out whatever you can pick out. I can't afford a piano because it's too expensive. But you know, so I tried the guitar, my hands were too small. Um so I said, I'll take that accordion. I was this little eight-year-old kid, and they had a strap for me that would actually hold the accordion on me so it wouldn't fall off. That's how little I was. <laughs> so you had a teacher, and I'm going to back in the story by telling, yeah. telling the, the audience this. My sister, who is listening live and watching live right now, her name is Amy. All right. Last name O'Leary, but her now married name, Dracy. Her Love it. Her uh, family on the other side comes from Chicago. My brother-in-law, Joe's great uncle, is a guy named Vince Dracy, who taught kids the accordion. Oh my. Do you know anybody who uh, might be in this room that he taught? Uh, might be me. Can you believe? So I'm reading this to my brother-in-law. I'm like, dude, is this the same family? And it was, and he, of course, used to brag about one oh, of his pupils. No, he was, uh, you know, he was, you know, the consummate musician, you know, and teacher and encourager. And, and uh, he got my father, after one of the lessons, he brought my father into the studio and said, I want to show you something. And he played a note. And he, he made me turn my back. He said, what note is that? And I said, it's a C. And he, go, and he played another one. That's an A flat, and that's a B flat. And he looked at my father and said, you know what that is? Perfect pitch. Your son is very gifted. And um, the only problem is he makes up notes that he's not supposed to play. <laughs> he's, he says he's improvising. He's reading the music, but he's playing notes that aren't in the paper. And uh, I, I got to get him to look more at the music, right. you know, because I, I would get lost and just, you know, kind of ramble a little bit. That's not on the, it's not on the paper, but um, he, he really encouraged me, you know, and I, what I was impressed with was he was making a living as a musician. That's right. I had first encounter at eight years old with a professional musician. And I saw him, you know, with his tuxedo suspenders on, he was getting ready to put his tie and go downtown and play. I'm like, I want to be like him. I want to be, I, the priest thing, I don't know about it anymore. I, I, I got, that got wrecked in the fire. It really did. Uh, it wrecked me. And yet the music was, you know, I was fascinated with what he knew. I wanted to know what he knew, you know, and I wanted to play like he played. Well, you started and yeah. you, uh, I believe it was in seventh or eighth grade, you started, you know, some people have heard of Journey. Everyone's heard of the Futurus, right? <laughs> the, the massive, huge yeah. smash and success yeah, right, out of right, Chicago Futurus, lands. yeah. That's the, the, I believe that's your first band. Yeah. Uh, I'm just curious, at what point during that wild ride, Futuras playing in the back of mixers and right. bars at the Sheraton, right. just kind of little acts, 
did you come on stage and recognize, dude, I think I can do this. It's not just a high school act or a late grade school thing. It, I, I actually it have It felt to get- like I belonged, you know? And, and I have to say my brother, Tom, uh, was such a huge part of, of my musical journey, you know, because he, he uh, hardly never had a lesson, I don't think, um, you know, a music lesson. And yet he was such a natural, uh, I could tell that he was dying to be a drummer. And so I remember go when I got my accordion, my professional accordion, the, the electric one, um, I made sure that he had a snare drum and a bass drum and a cymbal. And I said, now you put it in the basement and we're going to play together. You know, and so he and I would just jam for hours downstairs. My mom was like, oh, my God, it's so loud. I said, <laughs> you'll get over it. Don't worry. You know, and he really uh, was this wonder kid at 14 years old. Uh, incredible groove, could play, you know, just about anything. And then he, I taught him play a little trumpet, and he was playing some trumpet and playing the drums and singing along. And he, you know, a real entertainer. I mean, we were like the Smothers Brothers, but we were super young, you know, more like, you know, a young version of that, just mm-hmm. a duo. Mm-hmm. And that's how, you know, we uh, we started. I kind of left the Futuras because it was uh, harder to get everybody together. With Tommy and I, we could just go do it. Yeah. You know, but uh, it was fun. You know, we, we but I couldn't have say, I, I wouldn't be here without my brother uh, being by my side all those years. We must have played for at least 15 18 years together, yeah. For those who are just tuning in right now, we have right over here, Jonathan Kane. He is an author, songwriter, musician. You may have heard of one of his bands called The Futurists, but also <laughs> Journey is a band he's even better known for. He's got a beautiful book out called Don't Stop Believing. You. you eventually make a move from, I mean, you move around quite a bit, but eventually out to LA. Yeah. What was it about Los Angeles that attracted you? Ah, uh, well, this is God. This is what God did <laughs> for us. Uh, we were playing this little bowling alley, Kankakee. I mean, it was, you know, a really not a great gig, you know. But they were paying us decent. And in walks a friend of my manager's from L.A. His name is Dennis Nicholas, and he's representing Wolfman Jack Management. Wolfman Jack was a big radio DJ, star of American Graffiti, huge. you know, you know, huge uh personality on radio back in those days in the 60s and 70s and so he was there because my manager at the time our manager had asked him to come hear some music that we play because I was writing songs so one set we got to play three three original songs and he was so impressed um, that he said uh, you need to come out with Don Kelly uh, who's my boss and um, we're going to hook you up. We're going to make you a star. I'm like, come on. You're, this, this isn't right. happening, you know. So we decide, you know, take the big leap. We're going to leave Chicago. I'm going to leave my 12-year-old brother, Hal. Broke my heart. I had to leave him for all those years. But um, And, you know, get our Chevy vans and head to L.A. So we get to L.A., and what do we got? We have everything he said. Not only we have a place to live. Uh, we have a producer, we have a studio, and we have this incredible guy, Don Kelly and Wolfman Jack, you know, all trying to, you make know, it work. make it work for us. And and it, when I think about it now, it just doesn't happen. You know, if it, it, to most kids that have a dream like that, talk about being set up. Are you kidding me? And, you know, I was so like, wow, this is incredible. I'm going to get to go into the studio 
Then they bring this producer guy in, J.C. Phillips, and he's made all these great records. And I'm like, I'm going to learn something here, you know. And he was the one, Don Kelly, Wolfman's manager, that changed my name to Jonathan Kane. Okay. Yeah, he said, this, this Friga name is not going to work. No one's going to get it. It's, so come back with a name tomorrow. <laughs> well, you came back with so it. So I said, Jonathan Kane. He's like, let's see, how are we going to spell it? <clears throat> well, there's that... There's the Abel and Cain thing. I guess it won't matter in show business. <laughs> they probably loved it, man. And you said uh, set up, and it worked, and the miracle of it all. And, and yes, to all of that, but it wasn't easy, and no. it wasn't overnight. No, and we ended up on American Bandstand, which, which with a single, uh, you know, I had this little label called October Records, and they wanted to put it out. We, you know, and so there it is. I get. Uh, you know, I, I I'm on the, I'm on the charts in L.A. You know, at like 20 some years old, it's crazy. It's awesome. Yeah, and shortly after that, you're moving beer around in back alleys. And yeah, you're no, selling records was, and moving you know, speakers. Surely, and, if you make the Dick Clark show, American Bands, then surely you'll have gigs and people will be calling you for, uh, you know. And we were back in the pizza parlors, you know, and so I got to the point where like, you know what, this club thing is wearing me down. And I've got to focus on my songwriting. And my father had always encouraged that. He said, you know, don't play the blues and the jazz. Write the songs. You know, you're going to make the money. And you're good at it. And so I said, all right, Dad. Because I wanted to be a journalist, too. I mean, that was the other. I, I actually got accepted at Northwestern University in the School of Journalism, which was incredible. I just didn't have the money to, to go. You know, my father couldn't afford to help me. And, you know, he was making more money than the, the student loan would would allow. And Northwestern is pretty ritzy, you know, neighborhood. Mm. So I often wonder what would happen if I would have went to journalism class. But I, I could write, you know. I was the editor of our, editor of our newspaper in high school. So the writing kind of came naturally to me. And I had a couple of great English teachers in high school that kind of wrangled me in a little bit, you know, and said, you know, right. you have something yeah, to say, you. you know. And, and <clears throat> as I learned my way to writing with the producers in LA and, you know, um, I found that, okay, this is a world, you know, that I, I can actually su survive in. I could live in this world, you know? And, uh, you know, of course, Elton John and Bruce Springsteen were huge influences on me. Uh, Bruce, especially, um, with his, uh, early work, you know, and he kind of took what Dylan did and, and made it okay to sing totally. about your hometown and sing about your girlfriend and your car and and your neighborhood and call it, you know, jungle land. And I was like, come on, this guy's tremendous, you know. His his influence on me was huge, you know, and, and all of the great uh, music that was coming out at that time, um, Procol Harum, Moody Blues, those are the bands that I had my eye on. Jethro Tull, they were like, wow, this is... This isn't Louie Louie anymore, you know. But this as, isn't this isn't Hang On Sloopy. You as know? attracted as you were to those guys and yeah. that music, the realities of being beat down, failing, and not getting the break weighed on you, right? And the idea of working in a in a speaker store, yeah. doing a job that you were not passionate about, living under the under the water all Yell the time. Stereo. Well, you know, sometimes here's what I say: if you know you get down on yourself and bitter, it's better to walk away, you know. And take another another uh, shot at it. it. It's better to kind of just remove yourself from it. So I had to get out of that club scene, out of that I wanted, I wanted thing, and just 
be a dude that wrote songs and had a day job, you know, and and it was therapeutic for me because um, I was able to to humble it down and go, you're not, you know, you're not this club star anymore. You're right. not a nightclub star. You sell stereos and you write damn good songs. And, <laughs> right. and so you see what I mean? That's you strip right. it away. Uh, you know, sometimes when you want it so hard, um, you got to act like you don't want it. You know, you got to go, wait a minute. Well, let God decide this, you know? And I think that was just God's way of humbling me. Well, you were humble to the point of hanging up the shoes and hanging up the drum set and coming home with the keyboard. Yep. You call your dad. This is my understanding. Yep. Correct me when I'm wrong. And you say, dad, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm coming home. And uh, what did dad say back? He said, John, don't stop believing. And I went, whoa. And I had my lyric book out next to me and I was like, Okay, I'm writing this down. So I wrote it down and I kept doodling. We, he kept talking, listen, I'll send you money to get you through. My dog had gotten hit by a car. It was so crazy. And I, you know, she nearly died. She was a Great Dane and $900 vet bill. You know, I'm just like, and the vet was cool. He like, you know, you'll, you can make the payments, <laughs> you know, yeah, kind yeah. of thing. And right. so my dad said, well, I'll send you the money and you can pay me back. So that was cool. But he said, you stay put. We have a vision. Um, we have a dream. And I and he said, the greatest blessing is just around the battle. Just battle. Continue. He said, it's coming. You know, and so I did. You know, he sent me the money. And, uh, of course, I paid him back every dollar. But I I continued to write. Right. And I, I hooked up with this guy, Robbie Patton, who was also sent by God, by the way. Um and he calls me out of the blue and says, man, I really love your album that you made in, in Bearsville. I said, you do? No, I think we made 5,000 copies, you know. <laughs> well, that's great. Uh, let's write, you know. So I go to his house and I see this successful uh, songwriter living in Coldwater Canyon. I'm like, oh, it's another guy that's doing pretty great. Yes. When's, when's my great coming, you know? And we wrote a bunch of songs, and then there was an audition that came up in L.A., and it was the babies. So he looks at me, and he goes, oh, darling, you need to go to this audition. These lads are lovely, you know, and I said, but they wear makeup, and they got earrings, and he goes, don't worry, you're a rocker. You'll, you'll be fine. You sit in. Just do it for me, you know, and very sweet guy, and I go, okay, so he did, and I, you know, it was like two months of auditioning. Uh, I went in pretty successfully auditioned all their stuff they wanted and they end up wanting to do all this Wilson Pickett John was in this Wilson Pickett thing so he wanted to I knew all these songs you know and uh Mustang Sally and all this and I could I could stay with them on all of it so they were impressed so they so at the end of the thing they said well do you have any songs you wrote and I said yeah I have this song called Stick to Your Guns uh which was another father mm -hmm. you know my dad said on another phone call Stick to Your Guns it's in the book <laughs> he, he had he had all these isms, and I always write a song, you know, about it. And I played the song "Stick to Your Guns," and that's what got me the job. The, the babies song. rock. I mean, the, yeah. I would imagine many of our listeners and viewers don't. They may not be familiar with the the band, but you guys cranked some really worthwhile music that is still we we played. Today. You know, we played with some of the greats. We were with uh, ACDC. You know, um, we used to open for. Uh, you know, the Sticks band, we opened up for Blue Oyster Cult, um, Journey, of course, um, did a lot of that. I think we opened up for just about everybody, you know, for a while. We were on all the jams and stuff, and uh, 
It was good times. I remember playing at the LA Coliseum for 100,000. Do you ever, when you're, you're more experienced now in the business. So mm-hmm. I would imagine when you play Bush Stadium tomorrow night, you will recognize you belong. Yeah. You belong in that space. Is there a time though, when you walk into the Coliseum for the first time, everyone's there to see ACDC or Journey, whoever it is, and you are playing keyboard for the babies. And you're like, dude, I'm looking around. I do not belong in this space. No. Did you ever have that feeling? No, it's funny, John, because the very first show at the babies, I felt vindicated. I felt like I earned this, you know. I'm totally, I belong here. I belong on this big stage in front of 10,000. Amen, thank you. I just, I would thank God for that because I'll tell you, um, I felt right at home, right at home because I knew that all of that work and all that rejection and all the promises and all that stuff that uh, would lead somewhere. And, you know, it was kind of a affirmation for my father's prophecy. You know, your dad, I mean, we'll come back to him again and again, but just a stepping stone. Yeah, I mean, what a visionary. That's what he told me. So I'm in the babies and he goes, John, it's just a stepping stone. I'm like, what do you mean, dad? You know? Well, he, he's right. Uh, he was You right. uh, start hanging out with this little rock band that's already rocking. I mean, they are yeah. killing it already. Right. They have a wonderful band and they are together. Yeah. And then there's Platinum you. seller at Platinum. Right. So to, how, how, was the keyboardist of the babies eventually picked up by Journey? It was uh, a, a tour where we opened up for Journey, and uh, they made, were making a live album captured, and they loved Union Jacks, the record I had uh, worked on with John and the in the band, <clears throat> and so they had us open up for Journey. So I I remember meeting them the first time in San Diego. We were at the old dome uh, there, and um, I had roller skates on. I used to roller skate. After before and after sound check, just to kind of get a feel of the place. Usually, you know, it was just a way for me to get going and look right. around and be. I like to see the whole arena and see what it looked like over here and over here. So I remember Journey sound checking and hearing this voice and watching this leader like lead these guys through sound check. I mean, he was unbelievable. And then I heard the guitar and it was like, Okay, and then they harmonize so good, you know. And I'm like, wow, 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 wow. This is a whole nother level. And this is the guy that played Black Magic Woman. This is Greg Raleigh. They've got quite a a thing going on, you know. And um, something about it was very captivating for me, you know. And um, I, I, I wanted to become friends with them, you know. And so we did. And I got to know the manager. And then... I get to find out that Greg Raleigh's going to retire um, and they're looking for a keyboard player. And they, they drop, they, they drop it on me one night in a car. Like, what's it going to be when your journey's keyboard player? I'm like, what do you mean? Oh, nothing. Right. You know? And so it was this hint of, and I knew John had already told everybody he was going to go solo. He was done with the babies. We were so in debt. Um, there was no, no getting out of that one. So he, he had um, he had a terrible accident with his ACL. He tore it on a cable, and was out of commission for you know a good six months. So I I get a phone call in the uh, oh we had a Dr Pepper commercial come up. It saved nice. us for the rent money, you know, because we we didn't have any money. We had to end a tour. Um, we um, we did this commercial. They gave us thirty thousand for it. It came out really great. We all got our rent money. And then I get this phone call. Uh, 
and its journey. And uh, how does it feel to be here it again? I'm like, what do you mean? Uh, well, where's the audition? Oh, yes. there is none. You're, You're it. You're it. And we want you to come and help us make the new album in, in January. And the new album is called what? Escape. So Which, that's a theme of my life. It's funny because I escaped the fire. I escaped death a couple times, you know, where I should have been dead. And, you know, and now I look back at any of these failed marriages, you know, you you escape that, you know, and escape's been a theme of the book, you know, it's mm -hmm. crazy. Great so work. has the song Don't Stop Believing, which was given to you by your dad. Right. But then you ultimately had to figure out what to do with it. Right. And this is going to be one of the first songs that you right. write for your new band. Well, well, it's interesting. I was I brought in open arms too, yeah, you know, right. with with Steve, and uh, and then I think we pieced the rest of it together. We were just you know jamming, and it was it was really old school. You know, we'd all get together, play, and try to figure something out. Uh, Mother, father, all those songs on Escape were all. Uh, sort of a co-op Talk deal. about the lyrics to Don't Stop Believing. Yeah. We know where the title came well, from, but even... Well, here's the deal. Perry comes to me the last uh, day of rehearsal and said, you know, I think we need another song. You know, we need one more. We're missing one tune. And um, he said, uh, what else do you got in that book of yours? You know, and I said, I don't know. So I went home and I was just, I was staying in the, uh, the Visadero area, I remember. And I had a world's your piano with a skylight above me and i took my book out and i saw don't stop don't stop believing hold on to that feeling what a hot perry would sing that he would definitely want to sing that uh i just got to come up with a melody that'll soar you know so i had his voice in my head and i just started you know, the melody and had the chords and the whole thing just fell into place. So I brought it in the next day. So the music came first before mm -hmm. the lyrics. And he was the leader of that session that day. He said, all right, well, these, these are great chords. I said, what's the first going to be? He said the same chords. He said, but you're going to disguise them with your rolling eighth note thing that you do, that Jonathan Cain thing. Just do that Jonathan Cain rolling right hand, you know. Okay, Steve. So I would do this, you know, and then all of a sudden, Neil out of the blue comes up with this bass line. Boom. All right. Boom, 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 boom. Uh, and then he starts going, dig, 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 and then Perry's, I said, okay, what about the chorus? He goes, not yet. So in the end, by the end of the day, we wrote a song that only had a chorus that happened at the end. He goes, it's great, John. Everybody's going to want to play it over and over again because we don't wear that chorus out. I was like, that's genius. I like that. Cool. And we had a pretty good B section, you know, strangers wading up and down. The da, 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 da. And that was Neil. Came up with that those great chords. And um, so it was really, again, an improv. It's a right. Marty Scorsese improv session, you know, where everybody, Steve Smith came up with this credible drum beat. Now we have this song and Perry's just scatting, you know, we don't have any lyrics except for the chorus. And the next day I go to his house, which we always would do. When I have my cassette, I would record everything faithfully on this cassette machine, the JVC. It was like, I think it was on the cover of Hall & Oates record. I remember it was this great JVC. Uh, and I hit play and... I heard Neil playing a ticket, 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 ticket. I go, 
That sounds like the train. Right. You know, like that song, Midnight Train to Georgia. So I go, Steve, what if it was a midnight train going anywhere? He's like, ah. And then I said, you know what? Maybe this is like Jack and Diane. Maybe we need a yeah, small right, town girl, city boy. Yeah. And maybe it's about Sunset Boulevard in 1972. I, I have fond memories. Oh, really? Tell me. So I told him about, you know, Laurel Canyon and Wolfman Jack and going down on Friday nights to see the menagerie of all these different people that would, you know, hustlers Smoky and dreamers bar. and you name it, you know, record guys and film guys. And, you know, the, you had the Whiskey A Go Go, you had the Starwood, you had La Dome where all the deals were made, you had the Rainbow Room. These are places that were like still, you know, I lived it. Mm. I lived it for eight years. Uh, and, 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 and I sort of shared it with them. And I said, now, they're going there. That's, where they're, that's their destination. And they're, they're not going to stop believing that they can find their dream come true, you know? And so when we wrote the line, a singer in a smoky room, the smell of wine and cheap perfumed whiskey, go go. Or the Starwood. And, you know, Steve was really receptive to it, the idea of Sunset Boulevard, because he had played clubs. He had been the drummer in all these bands for clubs for years, you know, mm. so it was a big deal. For, he really received it, and he uh, came into agreement, and the two of us, you know, panned a, a classic, you know, just in that afternoon. It was just one afternoon. Amazing. When you pen a classic and you jam it out, you record it once, you know, it's still highly unlikely four decades later anyone's going to care about it. Right. Did you have a vision like, no, man, this thing is this thing's going to go big. Well, you know, it didn't go big as a single. Yeah, right. They, they didn't really, because Michael Jackson was right there, you know, with all his stuff and people kind of- ten, right? I it mean, went nine, number nine, I think. This is as high as it got. But we knew something special about the song. And Neil even looked at me when we were sequencing the album. Um, we all agreed that it should have been the first track. Have because, you ever played a concert without playing that song? No. Subsequently? No. What is it like tomorrow night being at Bush Stadium? And I think that year you did 130 shows. Right. I mean, That's craziness, right. right? Yeah, two legs, yeah. Unbelievable. But what is it like being there? The stadium's got that murmur that you have at a rock concert. It's between songs. There's another one coming. It's not the end of it. And then you hit that chord with your... Do you know, what is it like to be the one that hits the chord and then the entire stadium lights up? What's that, what's that an anticipation like for the pianist? It's validating. It's empowering. You know, you 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 uh, you smile. You have to smile. I mean, uh, I just smile when I play it. It's like one of those tunes that, you know, it has such a legacy and history to it. Uh, sopranos, Glee. You know, if you write something like that, you did pretty good. So, every band wishes they had one. You know, like a Hey Jude, right? Yeah, and, and we got one. You do have one. Pretty great. Three generations, it still lasted. And it almost seems to be getting stronger. It's a really unusual song. It's very unusual. It's the most downloaded song, I think, from the 20th century, bigger than the Beatles. Well, it, it you know, for classic rock right now, it's, it's way up there. I think we got an award for over 5 million spins, and that was years ago. So I can only imagine where it's at now. Uh, that song has uh, generated five times the amount of income of any one of our songs. It's five to one. That, that one tune, so you got to, Well done. There, Tell your dad thanks our, for uh, authoring the title of it. There's our song, yeah. He was right. 
Yeah. What, what's the hardest part of playing 130 shows with the same guys in the various cities with the groupies and the roadies and the music and the late nights and the early mornings and the, the PR that you're doing? What, what's the, the most balance. grinding? You, you got to balance. You know, you got you to gotta give some me time. Uh, you give other guys space. You know, you can't be all over them about everything. You know, your days off are your days off. And usually, like I would go and go to the gym, work out, or go golfing or something, you know, go to the movies, just get away from it, and then come back to it, you know. But um, it's also about communication, you know, to really keep the lines open. If you see something, Arnell may be struggling with a tune, let's lose it. We don't need it tonight. He's, you know... He, you know, he needs to, re- we, you know, so you take that song out yeah, because right. you see it going on. Uh, you know, dealing with tactical problems, mixes, ear ear monitors, you know, all that stuff. Uh, it, you know, it's part of it. But today, I mean, we're lucky because we're staying in great hotels and we're, we're we released a plane. And um, life is pretty good on that plane, I'll tell you what. <laughs> right. We have our own stewardess and... Uh, you know, it sure beats the commercial flights. Well, you were you weren't always on the the private plane no. at the uh, the fancy hotels, no. but you always had a heart that was open to giving. It came through your book repeatedly. In Cleveland, mm. you meet a little boy named Kenny, and as a little boy myself, I spent a little bit of time in hospital and had a whole lot of really cool people swing by. Yeah, meeting those people elevates your soul and your spirit and your health. And the wellness, not only of the patient, but everybody lucky enough to be part of that ripple. That's right. You meet this little kid named Kenny, and you wrote about it. Talk, talk about Kenny. Yeah, Make a Wish comes along. They're they're a new organization. I never heard of them before. It was like 1983, and they sent a letter to management. They gave it to me. You want to do this? You know, uh, this kid wants to meet Journey. It's, it's his wish. He's in a bad way. He's at, at Cleveland's Children's Hospital. So I said, I think we should go. I, we have to go to New York anyway to mix only the young, uh, which, uh, David Geffen had picked for, um, his movie vision quest, you know? So we were heading to see Bill, uh, Bob Clear Mountain in New York. And I said, why don't we parlay that in and we'll just stop in Cleveland. And it was Ross and Neil and Steve and I, I think that's the, the four of us. And so we went, um, and we got there and he was in a bad way. I mean, I never seen cystic fibrosis. I never, it just terrible, you know. He he looked like like he was thirty years old, and here he's only like fourteen or fifteen. Mm-hmm. And so it was my idea to bring the Walkman and the song. And I go, well, here, here, Kenny, uh, this is our gift to you. It's a, there's a Forty ers helmet here and a football all signed by the Forty ers and we have a song. So he put the Walkman on, and only the young starts playing. It's a rough mix that we brought to him, and. Um, he uh, he starts smiling, his big smile, and he just puts his head back on the pillow, and he dozes off into a coma, and uh, then he he passes the next day. Then you go. That was a Holy Spirit moment, because that song should have been on the Frontiers album. That song should have been, and it wasn't. And why? It was his song, and God meant that to be his send-off. You know, it was it was a deal because when I I struggled with writing that song, it was so hard. Um, 
and we're still doing it today. It's great, but I didn't know what the lyric was, you know. I just had this tape of Steve yodeling. He's just, nah, 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 you know, yodel, yodel, yodel. I'm like, I love this song. What is the title? What is the title? And I remember having it on my kitchen table for a month, playing it over and over again. Every morning, something's going to happen. Right. And all of a sudden, I hear it. Got it. I, I called him up and I said, I got this. Only the young can say it. So I'm sitting in the hospital room with Kenny, hearing Perry's voice. They're free to fly away. Oh, my God. And here is this kid on his deathbed, you know, listening to the last thing he's going to hear on this earth and its journey, singing about him. Pretty great. That's how good God is. You know, I wish we could drop the mic on that one because it mm. is such an awesome story. It's so full it's of emotion. True. It's and true. Truth. And, you know, nothing sadder. Uh than hearing that, you know, he passed, but at least, you know, he got his wish come true. He he was the first fan to ever hear that song and it was his song. And to this when you day, play that, I was are, I when still you play that, do you still think of Kenny? You still think And that I stay face? in touch with his family. Uh I still send little video tributes to his family. Uh, they we stay in touch. They're huge fans to this day. Mom and dad were were awesome and they gave us a plaque uh a bronze plaque, you know, that had um, right uh, the the story of us going there, and you know, Make a Wish now is our big charity. We we've contributed over half a million dollars now. Uh, you know, I raise money every. I'm going to raise money. Uh, let's see, in Nashville, we have a we play tailgate toss, and then I auction off a guitar mm-hmm. and a book, and you know. Um, but this year, we're 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 pushing $100,000 for Make-A-Wish. So I've I've stayed true to that calling. You know, when God called us to do that, I said, let's let's continue to be faithful to that that spirit. And I, you know, I, I got, I'm on the board in Nashville. Um, I'm honorary board member and I got the Lifetime Achievement Award uh, for, for Make-A-Wish. So uh, that's a big, you know, deal for me. You, you know, sometimes you're able to give encouragement, other times you need it. 1987, yeah. Uh, all yeah. the pouring into the Kennys of the world that you've been loving and serving and singing to and playing for, uh, that starts to come to an end along with just about everything else that matters to you. Just it, take us through 1987. Yeah, it was tough, man. Um, so, you know, you got divorced. So you're facing divorce. Um, my ex-wife and I were not doing well. Um, I knew it was going to be a battle. It wasn't going to be... One of those, you know, settle it. It should have been, but it wasn't, you know, and there was certain people involved in uh, influencing it the wrong way. So it went into the millions of dollars, you know. So by then I find my father's got cancer. Um, he's got three months left to live. And uh, I got to go to Phoenix and hang out with him as much as possible and and then deal with the divorce. And then Steve Perry decides he's done. He's toast. He says, I'm done. I, I can't do this anymore. I'm just like, okay, that's the three, that's that's three punches right in the, you know, in the heart. And um it was hard. I mean, I understood it all. I understood it was a test, you know, and um, you know, divorce is never easy. Um, but that one was tough. And then losing Steve at the end there, it was like, come on, this can't be happening. <laughs> 
but it was, you know, and I had to regroup. Yeah. For those facing that regroup demand right now, you know, many of our listeners, yeah. they never headlined a stadium. And they, in fact, many have never found love and many don't have the father that loved them in the first place, they feel. So for those who are listening to this or watching us live on Facebook, what, what would you say to uh, those of us who uh, just feel completely shut down right now? Um, that there is a blessing beyond all this, the struggle. You know, you, you, you have a breakthrough beyond all this. Um, I think that every battle that you fight is almost a test, you know. Can you endure? And, 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 I, and I think, you know, I, I, I have Holy Spirit and my Father and Jesus. I mean, along the way, um, I certainly prayed that, that year like I never prayed before, you know. I remember sitting up on top of my, uh, my house. I had this beautiful house in Marin County, and I sat up on a rock where I found a rock, and I sat up there for two hours, and I asked God to tell me what to do. Do I sell the house? Do I stay? Where do I go, God? You know, and, and, and he said, there's a higher place, John. You can, you can endure this, you know. And you, you have to think about, <clears throat> listen, I, I, deserve, <clears throat> I deserve a break, you know. And it's not coming right now, but it is going to come. And as long, I think, if you keep the hope that the, let the Lord take you to where you, you're supposed to go. And I think through prayer, um, let God decide, you know, get yourself out of the way. Um, and you are worthy to ask that question, where, where now, God, you know? And, and that's, 87 was, was a big time for me to come back to my faith, you know, mm. and really, really pray, because I was lost. I didn't know what was going on. There was a movie that I saw quite a long time ago called Patton. And uh, the movie was so long that halfway through, we took a break, went outside. The entire audience took a break, went outside, came back in, and we finished the second half. I feel like we could do that right now with my <laughs> new friend, Jonathan Kane because there's so much here. Mm. I mean, we're, we're halfway through the book. <laughs> so what I would encourage us to do instead of taking a break and coming back is either my brother and I can come back some other time and finish strong, or yeah. you ought to check out the book, Don't Stop Believing. It, it really is. <clears throat> it's a worthy read. And you, Thanks. You open up. Yeah. <laughs> scabs and wounds yeah. and stories and you go there and it's uh transparent yeah truthful transparent and to the point my wife paula um a huge influence on me these last you know seven years that we've kind of been together and um i have to say that you know watching her preach and telling her story and her testimony and then getting me up in front of a congregation and telling my testimony um really opened me up to to being a complete man, you know, like a, a man that's willing to share his heart, a man that's willing to be transparent, you know, about his faith, about his love and about his band, you know, and she really is uh, such a heavily, uh, I mean, she's a big part of my life and that I would find her, you know, in my sixties. <laughs> God has a right sense of time. humor. A guy that wanted to be a priest marries a pastor. <laughs> and I said I would never get married, you know. And and I married her like three different ceremonies. And I said I know never go to Africa. And I've been to Africa six times now. So never say never, you know. That kind of thing. I feel a song coming on. I think yeah. Disney may have already covered it, but Journey can do it better. Calling in the one. That's right. Jonathan Cannon, it has been a pleasure. We have seven questions that we wrap up every interview with. Okay. And uh, from astronauts to actors to 
you, you name the individuals, overcomers ultimately is yes. the thread that pulls them through. And yes. we have exhibit A in front of us right now. You are it, man. You are a walking, living, breathing, shining example of overcoming. So question number one on the Live Inspired 7 is what is the best book you've ever read? Oh, wow. <sighs> you know, um, I had a breakthrough, um, a revelation uh, with the book. I, I, I mean, being a Christian, I shouldn't even say this, but Eckhart Tolle yeah. wrote a book called The Power of Now. And that shifted me so dramatically. Reading that book, understanding what he was saying about being in the moment was huge. Okay. And it resonated and it changed my life. And I woke up the next morning looking at the world differently, you know, and uh, I'll forget it. It took me a while to get into it because it was one of those crazy, you know, reads. And and yet he's onto something, you know, he was onto something about the past and the present and the way it shifts you. Your ego can, uh, he said, you're on a dolly and, and your, your ego can take you back to your past and punish you and, and, and make you afraid of the future mm -hmm. instead of staying put right where you should be, you know? And I thought, man, this is the best advice I've ever had. So that book, it'd have to be uh, right up there, yeah. Right on. Mm -hmm. What's one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a little boy up in Chicago that you wish you exhibited as, as uh, brightly today? Um, hopeful. I, was, I had a lot of hope. I was, I was a very you know, almost like an altruist. I, I believe that all, certainly God loves us all and all, all is going to be fine. All is going to be great. You know, it turned out I was half right, you know. Right on. <laughs> I was half right. Well, and we're not to the end, of, the end of the story yet, so I think you're all right. Yes, sir. If you're home in Nashville or Chicagoland or anywhere else that you may uh, find yourself, if it caught fire and all living people are out, all living things are out, I know you have a passion for animals, and you were able to run in and grab one item. What one item would you run back in to, to return with? Ooh, that's a tough question. Um, probably my computer with all my lyrics on it. Yeah. And my laptops, I would, uh, iPads and all that. Yeah, I'd have to get all that because most of my songs are there, you know. That would be devastating to lose all that work. Jonathan, if you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day overlooking a beach with anybody living or dead. You got a couple hours up there. Who, who would you want to have those couple hours with? Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, huh? Abe Lincoln. Oh, yeah. An Illinois Phenomenal. boy. What would you say to him? How do you, how do you write like that? <laughs> his, his wisdom. I mean, his words resonate so, so strong. I, I got to go up to Lincoln's bedroom uh, recently. They had a White House little, uh, sh uh, sh uh, what do you call it? You know, it's a, a showing, mm -hmm. you know. We were we were doing a special ceremony with Paula there, and they have the Gettysburg Address mm. right there, the original one ago, that he wrote. And four score. I mean, what a no! He poet. he really was. He he was kind of you know way way ahead of his time. Amazing guy. Well, he wrote that on a train, right? So we're gonna bring in the train back. Be, in. be great to meet him though. Uh, what's the best advice you've ever received? Pay attention. Pay attention. That's huge. Like, like, stay in the moment. Pay attention. The same, you know. Uh, don't. I see a lot of people have conversations that aren't in the conversation. You know, they're kind of drifting off somewhere else. Right, looking down the phone. Yeah, you know, no, no, no. And you, you may miss something. 
and my father, you know, would always say, are you really connecting with everybody, you know, that you meet? Because there's, there's probably some wisdom that you need to take. People don't just meet by accident. There's a reason. You right. know? So pay attention to what is being said to you so that you can learn from it. And mm. I, it, was, it was good advice for me. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Oh, you're not always who they say you are. That's what I would say. You're not always who they say you are. You're uniquely unique. So don't be afraid. Final question, my friend. It has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How do you want your one sentence to read? Um, that's a good one. Uh, just, you know, I would say never stop believing. Never stop believing in who you are, you know. Um, you're uniquely you. That would be it. I mean, I'm proof. I didn't stop. I got sidetracked, but never stop, never stop believing in who you are. Jonathan Cain, frequently, uh, when you meet a celebrity or you meet anybody that you look up to, you walk away from that conversation very disappointed. And uh, man, I've, I've read your book. I've listened to your music. I've sang in bars, I think a little bit better than Perry, but that's a different conversation. <laughs> I've been a fan for a long time, in other words, and uh, I'm leaving this conversation more impressed than I walked into it. Thank you, John. Thank you, you. you pay attention and you inspire us to keep leaving. So I want to thank you for being part of our Live Inspired podcast. Thank you for having me. My friends, that is Jonathan Kane from Journey, among other great bands. This is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. All right. Dude. Peace. All right. Thanks, John. Well done. Thank I really you. appreciate you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. All right. You got to take a midnight train now, baby. Well, are we going to do the song or? Are, are you up, up to it? I don't want to. I'm up to doing it if you want. I guess I'm up to having you perform live in our. Uh... Let me get a. Uh... We're going to keep rolling. Hey, if you're on Facebook Live with us right now, Get a little more water. We're going to get a little more water, and we are going to take uh, the great Jonathan Kane from this recording studio. This is where we do our recordings, down the hallway, into that little glass area. And we're going to let Jonathan pick the song, and whatever he picks is what we're going to rock out for just a couple minutes. So if you're tuning in right now, walk down the hallway with us, and uh, let's open up our hearts to Jonathan Kane's music. sees the countless hours you spend songs that disappoint you in the end few have felt rejection you've endured no one knows the battles you have won no one sees you've had your dreams undone where a melody is lost without the words as you wait on the spotlight Come for the big night A pause you'll never show that you deserve Can't bear to see your stuff fading Always got something new waiting Failure's just a word you never learn And when it's time to leave the dance be sure you know the signs you'll be remembered 
for the songs you leave behind. It's the songs you leave behind. When the music comes, your mistress. Months, the weeks, the days you've missed Friends and love you've lost out on the road Every victory has a price to pay Stealing moments of your life away Where you shine there is no other way to go As you wait on the spotlight You come for the big night Applause, you'll never show that you deserve Can't bear to see yourself fading Always got something new waiting Failure's just a word you'll never learn And when it's time to leave the dance Be sure you know the signs you'll be remembered For the songs you leave behind Be sure you know the signs and you'll be remembered. You'll be remembered for the songs you leave behind. It's the songs you leave behind. There it is. My friends, the clapping is taking place at your homes and computers and laptops. This is Jonathan Kane. That was a beautiful song. Man. And um, it's my story. In, in short order, just explain to them what that song means to you as you play it. Um, you know, um, it's my life as a writer. Uh, I feel that, you know, it's a song for all songwriters. Anybody that uh, is a creator, any kind of, you know, artist that we all have... Um, that desire to be remembered. Mm. And um, I, I finished writing my book and did the interview and I was, I was driving home uh, to Orlando and, and God gave me that, you know, and, and I just thought um, of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I, you know, I was, I wait, for, I came for the big night as I wait in the spotlight, you know. I remember standing backstage thinking I'm going to walk on stage with all my bandmates and get one of the most prestigious musical awards to ever be bestowed upon anybody. 
and so that's where that lyric came from, you know. Um, and it's just the suffering that, you know, we all quietly have to go through as, as songwriters that, uh, you know, it's not something everybody gets, but I thought it needed to be said. Well, it was said and sung beautifully. Thank so, you. Uh, again, we want to thank Jonathan Cain for his music, for his heart, for lighting this up to recognize that the, uh, the struggles aren't the end of it. To don't stop believing and uh, to recognize that spotlight's coming for us all. Yeah, leave something behind. That's right. For this time, my friends, and until next time, this is uh, this is your day. Live inspired. Don't stop believing. Hold on to that all right, my friends, I'm dropping you a quick note from a layover here in Phoenix, Arizona, because I want to take just a moment to share some huge news. I've been whispering about it for a while, but the time has finally come. If you enjoy the Live Inspired podcast, you are going to absolutely love the Live Inspired in-studio experience. It's a place where you'll join me and an amazing community of like-minded friends for live webcasts once a month packed with inspirational and ideas to elevate your leadership, your relationships, your lives, and your journey forward. Registration only takes place twice a year, so don't miss this opportunity. Registration is only open today and tomorrow. Take advantage of it right now at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash studio. I'll see you there.